Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Over the last 10 years, we've seen a lot of our world change because of just how interconnected we all are on the internet. Whether you use social media or not, you know that's one of the main platforms right now, currently, that a lot of people are connecting with others with similar interests as them and others. And it just, it has quite the real world effect. I think no matter where you live and what country you live in, you have seen articles at least talking about people who have tried to use platforms to spread disinformation and to post lies. There's not really a truth detector that every post goes through before it goes up to the internet. But I'm certainly not meaning to pick just on social media, but I think that they definitely are on the front lines of needing to learn a lot of lessons about how various people, different geographies, different ideologies, and others will use the internet to perpetrate what they want. And sometimes that's good, right? There are so many great uses with real-world in-person impacts that social media and other types of the gig economy and two-sided marketplaces and all of that have had on our world. As I talked with Asaf Kipnis on today's episode, he really dove into two examples of what he and his team dug into and learned a lot about that I don't think many other companies have had to yet, but we know that just because, just because one specific method of attack was used towards one specific type of company, that doesn't mean it'll be isolated to them forever. We've seen attacks used on financial institutions, later reused and repurposed and adapted to target other types of companies online. So just another reason why it's so important for all of us to learn from each other. And if you listened to my episode and conversation with us off on Tuesday, he talked a lot, not just about his personal career journey and how it led him to the integrity space within trust and safety for two of the largest social media platforms in the world, first at LinkedIn and then at Facebook Meta for the last five or six years. But what really that, what that meant and what he and his team looked at, you will know that up until a few weeks ago, Asaf's title was engineering manager of integrity investigations for Facebook or Meta. and through that practical experience, he is now able to share some of what he specifically learned. And from that, I think there are a lot of lessons for anyone within the global trust and safety industry or any of the specific kind of micro industries within them. We're still trying to know how to identify ourselves in all areas just because it's growing so fast. It's changing so fast. Just like I was on the front lines of payment fraud 15 to 20 years ago, so many people working for newer types of companies are on the front lines of that type of threat or fraud or bad actors. And so on today's episode, I asked us off to provide more details and examples of some of the behaviors that he and his team 
investigated, especially in the last few years. And as you listen to this episode, I think that you will start to connect a lot of dots between, oh, I've seen a lot of headlines about this or, oh, so this is how they do this. Because as he mentioned on Tuesday, his team, really the integrity investigations team for Facebook, was charged to identify, investigate, and find methods to then identify and disrupt at scale the most complex and the most prolific threats on Facebook's platform. I can't overstate how much I learned today, and I know you will as well. But first, I just wanted to share a couple of things I think would be helpful. So one is the more, you know, and even I mentioned it on Tuesday's episode in the intro that one of the things that Asaf would be talking about today was misinformation or disinformation. And I have to correct myself because, as you will learn in this episode, there are some big differences between misinformation or disinformation and inauthentic behavior. Inauthentic behavior is a term that I actually just learned today. So <laughs> there would be some like, trying to but stumble my way, but it's something that I think is brilliant. And as we find new types of threats, we have to find new ways to explain them and describe them. Because if we describe them all with the same term, then we wouldn't be able to get into the details. And the details is where we find this behavior. The details is where we identify the threats, and then we find ways to remove them. The way that Facebook describes inauthentic behavior, and they have a great report that was released in October of 2020 that was really just focused on inauthentic behavior and it's public. So I will post a link to that in the show notes. But the way they describe it is inauthentic behavior as detailed in our community standards is an effort to mislead people or Facebook about the popularity of content, the purpose of a community like groups, pages, and events, or the identity of the people behind it. It also includes behaviors designed to mislead Facebook and evade the controls and limits we place on the use of our platforms. Every inauthentic behavior enforcement is based on behavior rather than the content, the specific content that's posted. So it's very clear that it's not about specific content. They're not the speech police, right? It's about the behavior behind it. What's the intent? What's the motivation? What's the goal of it? Is it to make people think that this is a true story because all of a sudden they're seeing it everywhere? Is it to get people to click on a link to then go somewhere else off platform? Those types of things, those types of the behavior around it. And as Asaf will talk about, there are some groups who are motivated by ideology and they will really oftentimes they'll stick to disinformation and misinformation, trying to change people's minds, trying to share information as truth and get them outraged or so distrust within various communities or governments, etc. But then there's others who just want to stir up trouble or they want to profit off of it and they're motivated by financial means. And that's not the only purpose behind inauthentic behavior, but that's more what we'll be focusing on. The coordinated inauthentic behavior networks require the central use of fake accounts in an identity-based deception. Other inauthentic activity is primarily centered around amplifying and increasing the distribu distribution of content. Inauthentic behavior can sometimes involve the use of fake accounts or other inauthentic assets, but we typically see little attempt to obfuscate their identity from Facebook and only the most superficial attempts to construct a false identity. So then this report goes on to talk about how they enforce against it, what some of the tactics and trends are. Definitely, I'm going to provide a couple of specific examples of things that are actually on Meta's 
newsroom on their public pages that would be very good examples of things that Asaf and his team may have been charged to look at because they may have fallen into the complex and prolific ways that the platform was being used that they didn't, they hadn't identified yet. And so they needed to identify it now so that they could then scale that and be able to restrict that quite a bit. One of those examples is from Macedonia, and actually there's several. One of them will be a report from March of 2019. And I was going to read it to you, then I realized as I was reading through it, it's not, it doesn't explain everything unless you're able to look at the pictures and look at the examples of the the actual content that they removed. And that's really hard to do on a podcast. But one of these articles came from March of 2019. Another one was December of 2019. That one was titled Removing Coordinated Inauthentic Behavior from Georgia, Vietnam, and the U.S. So there's a lot of details in there to look through. I encourage you to look at that after hearing this. It's really fascinating. And I think you'll connect a lot of dots into maybe individual news stories that you heard. Oh, the first article is actually titled Removing Coordinated Inauthentic Behavior from Iran, Russia, Macedonia, and Kosovo. And that was in March 26, 2019. So within this inauthentic behavior report, they talk about the specifics, right? What they see, what the behavior is, how they're using pages and how they're using ads and how they're using different things to promote ideology or trying to promote outrage or people to want to know more and click on links. A lot of them would often masquerade themselves as legitimate media sources. If you Googled them, you would know that they weren't, but just you call something the, if I were to call something the fraudology journal, I don't know why anyone wouldn't think that it was real. So if I were to post something like online fraud is now eradicated and there will never be any more abuse or safety issues online, and I said it was from the fraudology journal, how many people would believe that without clicking on the link? Or if I said something even more outrageous, what would make you click on that link to then go to another site that maybe is monetizing your behavior? So I that was pretty much what I wanted to share before diving into this episode. Those are things that I learned that kind of took me a minute because at first I was like, wait, isn't misinformation, disinformation the same thing? What's inauthentic behavior? Asaf does such a better job of explaining some of the details, but wanted to lay that foundation. And then we also talked a bit about scams. That was something that he was also charged, his team was charged to look into and really focus a lot of their attention on, especially in the last year or two. As more and more companies are seeing their users, their consumers targeted for financially motivated scams that are targeting the consumers, not as not as often as governments or online companies for monetizing that fraudulent behavior. One of the many ways that victims are identified or recruited or tricked in by a impersonation scam is through social media. And so they did a lot of research there. And Saf will talk a little bit about how he's also seen pig butchering attempts up on other social media sites as well. To remind you, and I'm going to have the top expert on pig butchering on this podcast very soon. To be honest, I was a little intimidated to ask her, but I'm so excited to have her on. But just for those of you who are not familiar with the term and who are very confused, that term was actually created by the bad actors themselves to really talk about the methods that they use to fatten up a pig for slaughter, essentially. It's often tied to crypto scams. There are specific methods and behavior that are often used to 
target victim. And Asaf will talk about how he's seen social media play a part in that, what that looks like, whether it's crypto scams, investment scams, impersonation scams, all of those things. And your company may be seeing another piece of this. So it's really fascinating and extra interesting to hear what one company's perspective is on a crime that you may see another piece of that. Right. Just like when I yell at Levin Bigger was on Biology a couple of months ago, she talked about the importance for online companies to know their place in the scam life cycle. And that's exactly what Asaf's going to talk about is the portion of the scam life cycle that he saw under a microscope for the last five years. You may see the exact same scams in different ways. Coordinated inauthentic behavior oftentimes will be seen by advertising platforms for online ads or search engines or other lots of other things too, but that would be the most common. And financially motivated scams, you're going to see them across peer-to-peer money transfers. You're going to see them in financial institutions. You'll see them with targeting telcos and through SMS texts and other things. So much is to be learned. And that's why I am going to now let you listen in on my second conversation with Asaf Kipnet from really drawing from his experiences over the last eight years, most recently as the engineering manager for Integrity Investigations at Facebook. I am back with Asaf Kipnis and enjoyed our conversation on Tuesday so much that I was very grateful that he offered a little more time to dive into some of the specifics of what he got to work on while being with the Integrity Investigations in social media. Asaf, welcome back to Fraudology Part 2. Thank you for having me. I think, yeah, it, such a good conversation last time. And now sometimes it's fun, I think, to have the first one kind of establish who you are and what you know and your methodology and all that. And the second one, we dive in and nerd out. And that's always our favorite thing, too. As we were talking about some of the projects that you worked on during your time, both at LinkedIn and at Meta. There were a couple of things that you really enjoyed that I also felt would be very helpful to the broader community within e-commerce and online, because oftentimes we're in an inter- interdependent ecosystem, right? And if a scam or if, you know, something else, some you have fake, whatever impersonation scheme or whatever it is happens on one platform, it can then be taken off that platform to then monetize somewhere else and impact someone else. And so they may be seeing a different perspective of it. I had, and I know you know her, Ayelet Bigger Livin on the podcast a couple, maybe a couple months ago now. And she was talking about how every company online should know their place in the scam life cycle. And I really liked that thought process because I think that often companies think about how they're impacted by a scam and what their either bottom line or what the trust factor is or the the reputational impact. And while that is important for business, knowing that we all are interdependent on each other in some way, or that maybe another way to put it is one platform is going to have a piece of that puzzle that the other platform isn't. I guess that's why I thought these would be really good conversations to have. And also, call it what it is, there's only so many things that you can talk about. But I appreciate that very much and never want anyone to get in trouble with a current or former or anyone else employer. I appreciate that too. But I wanted to, working in trust and safety and integrity, what was what were some of the 
types of projects in the organization, either that you touched or didn't touch? And then what was something, what was one that you really enjoyed specifically around inauthentic behavior and, and how all of that worked? So within my team, we worked on, I think I've said that before, the most complex, most impactful issues, mm-hmm. most prolific actors that were on the platform. There were many other teams are working on a bunch of other things on other mitigations. But when it got really, when there was something found that was unsolvable by other teams, our team would try to solve it. And it would really allow us like a long tail to look into things. Several of those were around inauthentic behavior, inauthentic distribution, and specifically around before before the 2020 election, while a lot of other people were working on more information operation stuff around mm. the world in all companies, people were working on that. By the way, I was not involved in that, so I have nothing to say about that. But we were working on networks that were doing inauthentic behavior to push out, how would I say that? They would push out in content that would entice people to click on the links, to click on this content, and then make money off of that, make money off actually off platform, make money off ads that are hosted on those websites that they created. I think we saw, I know we saw that in 2018, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, right before I started, we saw that and it was a big, if there was a big thing in the news back then mm-hmm. from a couple of locations, the Balkan and the Balkans and we were we kept seeing stuff like that a little later, closer to the 2020 election, as they were trying to use political content to get people to to click on links. Then I just want to caveat this, but I haven't been in the inauthentic behavior space for probably around two years. We were more focused on other things later. But this piece was something I really enjoyed doing. And I think it's going to be pretty relevant on any platform coming up, especially with the use of AI to create these articles. Mm -hmm. Because to create this content, you can just create any content and just make it sound appealing and people will click it. It doesn't have to have any quote unquote misinformation. It doesn't have to have that that angle of it. It just Mm. needs you to click. Whatever is in the article can be taken from something else or you can completely make it up. And they, the only agenda that they have is to make money. And the issue there is that it looks really bad on any platform that it is because it looks mm. like a lot of content in a specific space is getting pushed out. It could be political. It could be disaster related. It could be, as we know, the bad actors don't care. They'll just, it, right. they just need something to hook onto. For example, this is actually something that I I think we did a really good job defending on the platform, the whole Turkey earthquake. Mm. I only saw that on other platforms, mm. but they immediately hook onto that from not at all from Turkey. So we saw a lot of that and we create, I, me and others created an effort to combat that at scale. And what was mm. really nice in this, I think this is one of the more rewarding things that we were able to have a very much an in, interdisciplinary effort deal with this on a very deep level of the abuse, not just deal with the content, see the content, take down the content. It was, we were able to, with engineering, with data science, really understand what we're looking at and then make it impossible 
for it to happen, which I really enjoyed. It sounds really fulfilling. Just to go back a little bit, because I think that, I think you did a good job explaining it. Sometimes I feel like I, maybe I don't need to translate, but sometimes I do. No, I know. We all live in different worlds, but I like what you said about just misinformation and disinformation. The whole purpose of that, the, the driving factor behind that, the motivation is to make people believe that something is true that isn't. They, if, if somebody clicks on the link outside of it, they might just go to an article that reinforces that. And because of it's all over the world, it's not just in one country, but especially for countries that have freedom of speech or something like something similar to the First Amendment in the U.S. or it's happening outside and there's not, it's such a complex problem for social media companies to try to discern what to do and not to do. But that's not what we're talking about. So yes. And that's what I wanted to make sure we were clear. But within that, there's another piece that often got mistaken for that because it also had very intriguing headlines and maybe a picture that isn't true or things like that with the sole purpose of monetizing that click. Once that person clicks on it, then they get the ad revenue from the ad. Is that so they might cross over. There might be some headlines with with untrue facts about whether it's about politics or a disaster. But because the motivation is different, it's important for the platform to handle them completely different by different teams and work on them differently. It is is very important just if we start only for the intention of who's doing it. I can't speak much about the misinfo networks. All I can say is that I'm sure they're built. The structure is completely different. The work Mm -hmm. is the What's behind it, the tactics, the mm. other things, the, the money behind it, it's just different. I, what is very different to me about the financially focused actors or mm-hmm. motivated actors is that they don't care. They will talk about U.S. election today. They will talk about COVID, mm. which is exactly what happens, right? Yeah. They'll talk about COVID. They'll talk about a disaster. They don't care. It's the same network. What's really interesting about these networks is that they are chameleons. They can, it doesn't matter what they're talking about. They can be right wing, they can be left wing, they can be both. It doesn't matter. Right. Um, and they, the problem that causes both for society when it's political and for the company is again, it gets conflated with real nation state attackers it gets conflated in the news it gets conflated by people yes the, pe- the users don't understand what they're looking at because it looks legitimate looks and it's just from from a company perspective it's just really messy it's much easier when you break it apart and we were allowed to look on the content level to see how this manifests and we mm. were able to go after some of these adversarial networks for, again, their specific and authentic behavior that was financially motivated. And what's another thing that's interesting is they also diversify, which is really cool. Hmm. While I'm sure other attackers, I know other attackers diversify too, but you'll have, oh, this today they're doing this. The next day they're, maybe they're trying to take over accounts. Maybe they're trying to use different distributions maybe they're trying to use different advertising systems it's just about making money 
and they're very good at it. Yeah, it's, it's it really is similar to what we do on our side. It's a job. It's and they don't have as many constraints as we do, but they take it seriously and trying to find all the little exploitations and other things. But it's their job, whether they're forced to do it or not. So they're going to take it seriously and they're going to do everything they can to exploit the hell out of anything. And they don't care if one part isn't categorized as one thing and one is in another, either inside of a company or across different companies. And I guess that's what I meant by interconnected ecosystem. It actually makes it a lot easier because if you create some kind of mechanism that spews out your stuff to make money and the discourse out there is saying, oh, you're, I don't know, over-enforcing, then you can hide behind that as you're, the company's getting a lot of backlash on over-enforcing or on stifling freedom of speech. You're just spewing stuff out there that are wrong and divisive and inflammatory, but it make the company has a harder time enforcing on you, which is, which makes it really difficult. But speaking of jobs, just I want to talk about this because I'm doing this instead of doing the job that I don't have. But I was thinking about how AI kind of will play into this in 2024. And I just went and created a blog page on Google on blog post. And I went on some random AI writer and I said, write an article for me that would look really bombastic about Trump and DeSantis having a fist fight. And it did. Then I went to another AI and said, give me a really cool headline for this. And then another AI that made a picture of Trump getting restrained. And I would click on that and I can make, it's funny, I was thinking about another podcast. I can make 500 of those and link them to each other. And 500 versions of the same story and link them to each other. And these AI writers, it it was really weird. It gave me references to a made up story. I don't know how it referenced stuff, but then you can ask to be referenced to different things. Yeah. And that's worry about that part. That's really hard to detect because that's you don't need someone to write this. There's no writer that you don't need a group of people sitting in an office somewhere making this stuff up. You just need one person. The barrier to entry has a, been a lot lower. reduced. Yeah. On a side note, I I thought about that after Frank McKenna and I did our April Fool's joke, where we had one of the AI writers write up. We put in like 42 of the biggest buzzwords within the industry and said, write a press release. We named the company silverbullet.ai just because yeah, he even bought the domain. Like he went all out. I, I was mostly just the face, but he did a press release. He did an article, all of that based in there about it. And what's crazy and what I didn't think about at the time, because I didn't, I just hadn't dove into that piece yet but like a week or two later i was reading about the references and that's the whole thing about ai is that it's generative it's constantly learning so when you put in fake things and there's already been situations like that where there's a local politician on the east coast of the u.s where he was wrongfully accused of something and now whenever anyone writes his name in any article that's going to be written by a specific ai writer that is mentioned and he's trying to get that erased and they're like, we can't erase it. It's its own beast. And I texted Frank and I was like, I'm a little bit worried that now silverbullet.ai is going to be referenced or like people are going to say that this is possible because we did it in it as a joke, but that's just one example. And it's your right to absolutely call attention to that, whether it's for any specific election or not, whether it's for sorting like, sowing discourse within a community or a nation or anything like that, 
those types of things, the barrier to entry, you no longer have to ask someone to write something. You no longer have to try to make it settle. You can just have me do it. And then you can do so many more. And to your point, just using your example that you did with the article that you wrote for AI, and you said you could have it linked back to 500, 500 different ways and all those other things. Can you explain a little bit on the monetization piece on the ads? I really want to have a good friend of mine who is an expert on advertising fraud on the podcast soon, but I haven't yet. Not that you have to go into super detail of the ad side, but I do know, I know basics, right? That they would make their own website, have it so, go to that. And then they would get ad revenue because different people, different real people are clicking on the website. Yeah. So you can utilize any ad vendor, Google, Tavala, it doesn't matter. And there's a couple of things that one can do. So you make a website for your newspaper. You honestly don't need to make, you can make one. And then every single link on that, imagine like a news site. Mm -hmm. Every single link will go to a single different article. Every single page within there, with an article or with whatever, is just some text and ads. There's a bunch of stuff you can do with that. You can do pop-up things. You can make it different for... So for example, on mobile devices, it's different because you can just have these surveys that keep jumping up. So in, in the end, you get paid per clicks. The more people that click around your click to the page that has an article that has a bunch of ads on it, the more people that click, the more money you make. This is completely not related to the social right. network. No, not at all what you did. This is well, off platform. Well, right? this is right. something that we saw, but it's just like that there's things that you could say, oh, this is facilitated by the net by the, the social network. This is completely not. There's nothing you can do about that. Once they click a link in an ad or in an article yeah. that someone shared or that somebody paid to post or something like that, it's going off of the social yeah. media network. And now it's going onto their the own their own domain that they created, yes. most likely paid for with a stolen credit card. We know all you that. With a stolen credit card, you can have bullet bulletproof domain, bulletproof host hosting providers or mm. hosting providers that are just not gonna take it off because Immediately, at least, or ones that just don't care. The other thing that, that we found that is prevalent that people can do is you can spew these out by putting them on other domain. You can create your domain and then you can have link to your newspaper on other random blogging domains. And you can create whatever you want. And we, the more you have those backlinks, the more the SEO on Google goes up yeah, for that as well. So if you're Googling yeah. Earthquake, exactly. then maybe that website's going to be higher up in the search results because it had so many backlinks. Exactly. We can exactly. create yeah. turkeyearthquake2023.blogpost.com. That doesn't have my website on it, but it has a way for you to click on something to get to my website. And it's also a great way to obfuscate if you're trying if they're trying to catch you, uh, right? Because th then it, it it could turn into a game of whack a mole of just taking down all the blog posts instead of getting it's a whole thing. And that goes back to what you were saying about the interdisciplinary effort, right? If you if the plat if the social media platform made the decision just if their only weapon was to stop it at the account level, then they could have an entire team doing nothing but that for years on end. And yes. it's the same way for anything within online trust and safety, whether that's payment fraud or any other piece. 
we need to do that manual piece or that account level piece to be able to identify the new things. But that should be something that then goes to someone else, whether that's internal or to a third party provider or to product or something like that to say, how do we stop this? How do we identify this? How do we disrupt it? How do we detect and disrupt it for the future? Now, granted, these guys aren't going to go away right away, but how do we make it too expensive and too time consuming for them to use our platform to do this? Yeah, too daunting, the barrier to entry higher. Again, Mm -hmm. every time I think of these things, it reminds me of of the military and stuff that I did in the military. Hmm. Yeah, you can protect the border. You can make sure nobody comes in. But what governments do in the military do, okay, I don't care about the guy that crossed the border. I care about the guy that sent that guy and the guy that sent that guy Mm -hmm. and the whole organization behind it. Not going to go into geopolitical stuff and what is happening. You don't go after the pawns. It's a waste of everybody's time. You go after one pawn. They create a hundred more or they already have ones. And it's interesting. I see that a lot. And recently, because I've been listening more to podcasts and things like that, I still see professionals going after the lowest common denominator. And if that's all you can do, that's all you can do. You got to protect your space. But I really have a hard time relating to that because maybe because I come from a computer science background, I don't want to do the same thing twice. I definitely don't want to do the same thing a hundred times. It's a waste of everybody's time and you're just going to be fighting that one thing for. Yeah. Yeah. I see it on a very regular basis, especially by smaller companies that are under-resourced or they're uh, the people who have been selected to manage, whether it's trust and safety or fraud or investigations really maybe don't, haven't. Either their brain doesn't think like that, which is totally fine because that means that they're really good at operations or something like that. But for overall strategy, for going back to the root cause, doing root cause analytics, and then figuring out, okay, what can we do further upstream to stop this or at least make it much harder for them? And so they're just continually playing whack-a-mole at the very beginning, or they're under-resourced and the third-party provider that they rely on tells them that this is the only way they can do it and there's no other way. That is something that really frustrates me, especially lately with a lot of conversations I've had. And sometimes it kills me not to just name names on my podcast, but that's another story for another day. But I will always say my injustice is not isolated to just cyber fraud and cyber criminals. But yeah, I mean, there are definitely some organizations that they just aren't resourced that way. But I think it's a really good challenge to say, but how can you be, right? Like, how can you talk to leadership to say, we we shouldn't have seven people looking, you know, content moderation or manual review. Instead, we should, we have to keep those seven people. But while we're doing that, we need to find a better way to just plug that hole all together. And those yeah. people can be used at, in a much better way that's better for them and better for the company. You can start looking at other pieces of the puzzle other problems because you don't have just one you never do so that's the thing i am very hesitant about talking uh, about content moderation and just just do more because i am very well aware that i'm i come from a very privileged place i right. come from these large companies that have everything 
And if I tell someone who is a smaller company, oh, yeah, you just need a data scientist and an engineer, <laughs> investigator, it's just yeah. go. Uh, they'll laugh at me. You mean half a person I have? Yeah. Um, or they already flipped off the podcast a minute ago. Yeah. Yeah, totally. exactly. And, <laughs> and also, I also come from a place that we didn't really, rel- I don't feel like we relied on a lot of vendors anywhere I've been. Right. So when people talk to me about mm. vendors, I'm like, really? What do these mm-hmm. vendors do? Because I have no idea. I, I was going to no ask that, but it wouldn't have been nice or appropriate. So. Oh, yeah. I know what you want to say what the vendors do. But yeah. like, I've used... Not all of them, obviously. Yeah. I have some I great some... ones that sponsor the podcast, and I have, but I'm very selective yeah. based on feedback because some of them, I legitimately think they sit on their... I don't know. I don't know what they do, but they certainly don't work on improving or innovating, innovating their detection capabilities. I've worked with some really amazing vendors, not as, just in the OSINT space, but yeah. we can talk about the one vendor that I really like later. I, I always like hearing about those. I'm going to name drop them here. But, but those are my favorite to know about offline. Yes. Yeah. I like those conversations better than the other ones. Although lately I've been having more of the other. Yeah. Anyway, we can move on from Carice's mid-ramp. <laughs> but do. you're right. You were, but you were, uh, it's good to recognize, right? That there was privilege. Um, but I also think it's good for us other companies that are under resource to recognize, like I said on the last episode too, what the biggest companies do, right? When you have a bigger budget, when you have bigger capabilities, do you double down on third party? Do you not double down at all on content or trust and safety or fraud? Or do you invest in the right things? Because that's good to know to be able to speak to and say, hey, if we want to be the next Facebook, if we want to be the next Amazon, Here's where we should be headed. We should be investing in these pieces because they do. And here's why. So I guess it goes both ways, right? I totally agree. I just think that once you do something, the same thing enough times, it can be the worst case scenario. Yes. You do it enough times, you should be able to take a step back and say, okay, let's analyze this. Let's do a postmortem on what happened here. Mm -hmm. Try to understand what are the building blocks for this attack and yes. what where are our capabilities to cut one or two or just one of these building blocks so they'll mm-hmm. have to either fork or hop over or go somewhere else there's a lot of options for the attacker but it's this is goes to a thing we were talking about earlier offline about postmortems how that's like mm. my my, the thing that I like, again, I do tell a lot of military stories, but I was in the artillery forces protecting the northeastern border of Israel. And we would have an event, things would fly in the air and explode. And then no matter what the time it was, I didn't sleep for two days. The commander of the whatever it was called would get all the officers together. What happened? Where did it come from? Where did it start? And then we were no, okay. We know where the fire came from. Now we have new targets. Cool. Next time they start, we know where the targets are. Ooh, maybe we should go explore that target before time. Before, and then you talk to intelligence. Then you start creating a cross-functional. So this, when I say we in the meeting room, this is all the cross-functional members of yes. the officers of that division. This mm-hmm. is not just one type of work it's their artillery person it's the comms person it's the intelligence person they're all sitting together just talking about what happened they have a different person they each have a different perspective of that they attack. each have a completely different story of what happened 
<laughs> I was in an artillery war room. I only know what happened with me. I don't know if right. bombs failed at any point. Yeah, you know what happened on the ground. You don't know what happened yeah, from the, the front. air. From- yeah, so you <laughs> get the full picture, and that's the first thing to get from a postmortem. You get everybody together and you decide, have a mutual understanding of what what just happened, what what happened, and then you start doing the root cause the root cause analysis, which mm-hmm. is just a different terminology, but. When I was doing that uh, later on in life in trust and safety, you get everybody in a room, you see what's the event that you mitigated or, yeah, it got to a point that you mitigated it. Right. Come out of there with what exactly happened, how did it affect each of us, and how can we make it more difficult next time? What do we need Mm -hmm. to change augment, restructure, even on a micro scale, how next time I always equate it to they open the door in the wall. I don't want to just keep hitting them as they walk through the door. I don't want to close the door. I want to retile the whole thing. So there's no door. So they'll find another door. And that has to be a cross-functional effort. And I totally understand again, from my point of privilege, it's like, I did have times that everybody was bought in and I had times where nobody was bought in. Obviously, the times that everybody was bought were was bought in were a lot more effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you do get to a point that nobody is bought in, and you take your hammer and you just find things and hammer them down until you have enough metric to go, hey, I've been hammering this for a year or hmm, for a month. Again and again, we need to do something about it. But then this goes into metrics which is a whole different beast specifically within trust and safety because metrics are really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I had so many other things to say about what you just said, but then you said metrics and I thought about, and I thought about the company, the large company I talked with just a couple of days ago who said they have a new executive that oversees their trust and safety department who thinks it's a great idea to add NPS scores to every interaction with trust and safety because that's what they know, right? They know that the way that they measured their last several companies because they were in customer experience and customer service was through the net net porter score. Is that what it is? Whatever it is, something scores, NPS. I can't remember what they're called, something. I might be confusing two different things, but anyone in customer service or has a customer service background or retail knows that. And I was like, wait, so you're basically doing customer satisfaction surveys at the end of this? But I understand, right? Because it is hard to do metrics. I really wish I could explain the look on your face right now to podcast yeah, listeners, but it just, that, it looks like you ate something really gross. Yeah. <laughs> and I was thinking the same thing, like, because the merchant was basically like, hey, how, do you know anyone else that does this? Can I talk to them? Do they try it? And it was horrible, or maybe they tried it and it was awesome, but like, I, I really need some kind of a business case to tell my boss other than in my gut. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Like, that's very hard. Yeah. It and is. Sometimes yeah. trust and safety does come from customer care. I worked with LinkedIn in the beginning, at least it was a, car, a part of customer. Yeah. And we were the grumpy team among all these happy people in every, <laughs> you know, all hands. We're like, we don't belong here. We don't make it easy for anybody. Right. It's also not the best way to look at things. But no. yeah, we're not right. here to There's make it happy or make it easy or get an award for being the coolest. Like, no, we're here to find the people that are doing bad things and make their life miserable. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. 
So what is sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. And on a social media platform, to be fair, the people who are doing bad things are usually really bad, right? Terrorism and child safety and all those things. And so you yeah. do have that feeling, of, I don't care. I will say on the payment front side, it's more complex because you don't know if you're talking to a true customer or not. And I used to, I used to tell my team that whether it was a, and this was when I worked for an online rental company for very expensive handbags. So we didn't just tell people no, because we thought their credit card was stolen. We also told people no, because they probably wouldn't pay us next month. But I always told my team, I want you to, if they call and you have to field the call, I want them to thank you at the end of it, even though you just told them that they're not getting what they want. So I think that obviously context matters, right? But to the same point, we were also part of customer service. And I used to say that we balanced them out. They wanted to give away the farm and we wanted to like hold on to all of the farm. And so it was like, how do we work together so that we're just giving away small pieces when they're needed? But yeah, I took us left left hand turn there. But I think that your analogy of thinking of it in really relating it to your time in the military is absolutely correct. Because if you aren't taking the time to say what happened, why did it happen? What can we do about it next time? Because there will be a next time. If something worked, they will not only come back, they will tell their friends that it worked and then they'll sell methods to how it worked. And they'll, it will just keep coming, coming and you'll have to get more and more hammers and to using your analogy. And so I think that it is, however, a easy temptation or not honestly it's not even something we always think about right it's just it's easy to get distracted by the next fire because those of us who like to put out fires are kind of adrenaline junkies and we just want to dig into the next fire and tear it down but we really need to stop and say how can we have it so we're not fighting the same fire all of the time i've yeah. been working with yeah companies on refund yeah. fraud that's a good example right so that the best investigators don't get motivated by fighting the same fire. 
mm. see it and they'll say, wow, so why am I wasting my time? I did this a month ago. I'm not learning anything from this. And that's actually something that did happen to us when we were working mm. on. This is one of the reasons why it was hard in the end to work on this inauthentic distribution work, because it continues to be the same, even if you do mitigate it at scale. Really good, really motivated investigators got burnt out, even from doing, it's almost ops work, but it's very complex ops work, but you just keep working on these networks again and again, and it gets boring because yeah. this is not new behavior. We're, 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 even if we're doing it on scale, at scale, they're changing enough that it doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, that gets frustrating though. If you do it for long enough, uh, again, it's it's hard with really motivated, really good investigators. Yes. Long enough, but you do it for long enough, you'll get the signals that you need. And once you put it beyond the rule phase, you put it into machine learning, mm. then you can actually reap the rewards. Not always possible. Very easy to say, even in a very large company. Yeah. Yeah. And machine learning has its downfalls too, right? Because I think this is a phrase that you... I don't know if you, I can't remember if you said it on the last episode or in our pre-interview conversation with machine learning. Sometimes they can just move an inch to the right or an inch to the left and not be cut either. So there's, while machine learning does allow things to be scalable, and I definitely think it should be used, like with everything, it should be one of many tools. And I also feel like having the caveat that all machine, machine learning is not the same for every company. There are too many vendors out there that claim they have machine learning when it's really just a glorified reporting or glorified rules engine. It's also yeah. important to know what type of machine learning you have. The thing <laughs> or you're you also using. Need to, there needs to be an understanding that usually this understanding doesn't exist. It usually exists with machine learning engineers. That machine learning is not a car you turn on, you put a brick on the gas and you leave the car. Not how that works. It works exactly like that because that car is going to hit a wall and then gets squished. It doesn't work. But a lot of times, and I wouldn't call out a specific company for this. I think it's just a mentality in general. Oh, we have Mm mock. We're good. Let's go to the next fire or the next problem. That's fine. But you are leaving this problem without a babysitter. And unfortunately, machine learning needs a babysitter. It needs to learn from something. It mm-hmm. learns from a lot of, there's a lot of inputs for machine learning, but yes. they all need to be monitored and they need to be consistent. And what happens a lot of times, and they just, the tending is not consistent. And it's just, again, now I have, I'm, I was the prince of analogies back at Meta. And now I'm thinking about my garden. <laughs> yeah, you can put strawberries and they'll just grow yep. every time. But anything else probably I'll just not going to grow again, or you don't tend to it. It's not going to grow well. And then it becomes a whole different problem of over-enforcement. And there are even bigger challenges when lots of different business models are forced to share the same machine learning models. That's not always the case for all vendors, but that is starting a few for some of the products where that is the case. It worked out great up until two or three years ago. But now there's so many different complex problems and good users now look like risky users from three years ago on some things. And so they're getting caught up in the net too. One one of the examples I've been using a lot is like, how many times do you listen to a tech-focused podcast and you hear an ad for VPNs, right? But five years ago, 
there were several risk models that would be like, oh, VPN, it must be bad. If you still use that model, you still use that risk engine, you still use that type of tool, you are turning away way too many good guys. And that's like the other day we said, are you focusing on the mitigation or the, are you perpetrating it? Are you perpetrating harm or? Exactly. And that could also hurt the business. I know (laughs) sometimes you find out that a way that people were doing business on your platform that you were not okay with initially because you were not in control of that. Right. Like, this is actually a great way to do business. Let's facilitate (laughs) that instead. And then. Let's guide it and put parameters around it. That way it's a good thing. Yeah. And it's an. How you have. All your old mitigation that are mm-hmm. messing mm-hmm. that up hard, and then you have very angry customers because they used to be they used to be considered bad guys, and now they're not. So, for example, if tomorrow LinkedIn has a business, I don't know, of scraping purely hypothetical, right? Scrape us for money. They would never do that. <laughs> no, and I'm just no. They would never. Right. Let's Somewhere policy. No. <laughs> it's a great business idea. Yeah, LinkedIn, relax. I know this is not something you would do. I hope. This is a great idea. Let's get people will pay us to scrape us. Yeah. That would be a really big problem because there's a lot of mitigations for that. Um, right. And you give people this is the problem of our sales versus engineering. You give the promises and then it, you get stopped at every turn. Yeah. In the end, when you are putting in mitigations, you have to make sure that they will continue to you will continue to iterate on them. That's right. And there's a continuing learning. It's true for a lot of things. So social media related scams are usually the classically that I've seen everywhere. It's romance scams, crypto scams, Mm -hmm. advanced. I forget how it's called. Advanced Advanced payment scams. Advanced payment scams Mm -hmm. like Dell and stuff like that. That I've talked to people who told me about it. And I've seen it here and there. I have been tar- I've been being targeted on LinkedIn, which is really interesting because it looks like they're targeting people in trust and safety, which is completely bananas to me. I've been talking to a person and they actually, I think their main thing was to invest in crypto. And now they're, this person is trying to get me to invest in gold futures. Yeah, that's, I think that's the new thing. I have a whole thing that I need to write about because I have their entire conversation with this person. Um, Is this the same person that asked you if you were dead (laughs) because you were ignoring them for a couple of years? I suggested you just write back and say, yeah, I am. Yeah, I'm dead. And now they're really mad at me because I just stopped paying attention because I got everything I needed from them. They did not get what they wanted or needed. Not at all. They were so close as far as they could see it. I was on their platform and everything. But there's... All kinds of types of scams. And it also depends what you want to call a scam. Like phishing could be a scam. Phishing for anything. Phishing for your credentials. Phishing for a Facebook page. I don't know. Or an Instagram account or something like that. Malware. All the things. Yeah. Right? yeah. So what we saw, what we were working against is trying to understand how does it look like? And what I did notice with specifically with scam versus the other thing, the authentic behavior I was working on, that... Scams anywhere are so prevalent that it's hard to to really pinpoint when you want to go after like a linchpin. Oh. Experience that everywhere. It's just there's whole locations that that's what they do. This is their job. They do scams. We know this. But what does work against scams is me, be mitigating the TTPs at scale, understanding how it looks, Mm. understanding how the crux of 
how do they interact? How do they find how do they find people that they're going after? Mm. Get a lot more robust because they're looking for everybody. And what are they trying to how are they trying to present themselves? But then again lies the difference between taking a list of pig butchering accounts and taking them down and taking that list of pig butchering accounts, understanding their commonalities and then saying, oh, okay, let's see everything else on my platform that has these commonalities. And then saying, how accurate is this? Is this a good, is this, does this look like ba- like a big group of bad guys? No? Okay, let's narrow it down a little more and let's flush it out again, which is always when someone ex- asks me like, how would you explain investigations? You make a big cluster, you make it smaller, you make it big again, you make it small again until, and then you play around with the accuracy of what you found. And I'm not, I'm not going to speak to like how much, how many things are happening on platform because I honestly don't know, but we were, we, and I know that's still, I'm sure that's still happening that there's a a work to really deeply understand. That's what I was trying to do, like really deeply understand how does this look like? And at the same time, how can we make sure that we're not taking down good people, that we're not Mm -hmm. making it hard for people to use the product, which is critical. This is both from a a business perspective. And again, from a a social media perspective, you want people to enjoy using your product and not get taken down every minute. Especially a social media product that has been in your life for 15 years, right? 14 years. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I will say from personal experience of my conversation with this person on LinkedIn, mm-hmm. I am not sure how I would identify that this is a scammer from a third person perspective. Talking. Romance right. scams are easy. Romance scams is like, hey, I love you. Give me money. These ones, they just want to talk to you. That's how it looks like. And so pig butchering scams are hard because that there's all kinds of heuristics that you can look at. But that mm-hmm. heuristics of what they're saying to me or how they're presenting themselves It's very hard. Even from, I'm a victim, quote unquote. Like it was very clear. The thing is, it's really funny because they friend request me and I immediately know because I've been doing this for long enough, but they look pretty benign and they're connected to people I know. Uh, Yeah, you and I talked about the weather. I had a whole rant with Uh, someone that used to be in the military with me. He's in Israel and he was like, why shouldn't I connect with everybody on LinkedIn? Oh, goodness. And I tried to explain and he was very adversarial about it. That's the point of LinkedIn. I said, yes, but you still need to appreciate that this is we don't live in a utopia. People want to do stuff to you. We're not in a, yeah, it it feels like a protected bubble because we know a lot of the people on LinkedIn in real life. But this is actually, yeah, it's a solo episode I need to do soon of the do's and don'ts of LinkedIn. One do's as far as like for your career and to help you and things like that, little tips I've given, but the don'ts, I told you this, we talked about this offline because I often hear from people, oh, I always, whenever I see that we're, I'm, whenever I get a LinkedIn connection request and I see that I'm connected to, that you're connected to them, then I just accept it because I know they're in the fraud industry. And I'm like, whoa, I do try to be as discerning as possible. And I have definitely noticed, and I don't think it's entirely, I'm not, I don't think either one of us are trying to blame LinkedIn on this. They're a good example because I think everyone who listens to this probably uses it. And unfortunately, they're being used because of the trust factor. But I'm very conscious about who I connect with, but I don't have the time to do that. And so I, at one point, 
just a month or two ago, got to 300 connection requests waiting for me. Two of them were prospective clients that were like, Hey, I wrote you on LinkedIn in my connection request that I really wanted to work with you and I need to talk to you soon. Why are you? And I'm like, Oh my gosh, it's just, it's clogged. So I walked my assistant through the basics of what I look for, but it's not a perfect science. And so it's important to not just say, Okay, we have 20 connections in common, so we're good. I have my few things that I'm sure on the podcast, I'm sure they'll be very similar to yours, but I'm sure you also have some others. If you are telling a friend, hey, here's who you should look out for, who or what is pig butchering behavior? I just hate the term so much, but the pig butchering scam behavior when they first come on, as far as maybe you've already accept. Okay, so two different parts, right? One is when they're, you know, what does their profile look like when they've asked you to connect? And two is what is the behavior as soon as you connect? So, before you connect, the things that I that immediately stood out to me is number of connections, which is always a weird location, not necessarily China. There's all kinds of locations, a job title that doesn't, that sounds weird, but also has nothing to do with you. Also <laughs> very, the profile is very sparse. There's one job, mm-hmm. maybe one thing. They're not on groups. They're not on anything like that. It's from what I have seen, it's also always a woman that appears asian not like a full face but like looking away has a hand on their face so that's that the other behavior is the classic how there's just cold messages of hi how are you the i've actually seen in mails mm. if they pay for them that yeah would be um, i think yeah, yeah i think that maybe i don't remember they might get like the free the free trial account and get maybe. 45 in mails and use those i've had a few as well yeah where i can just they're asking me hello my dear how my is dear. you my, i um, get my dear a lot some of them are all like you say you get a lot of asian women i get women and men as well because yeah. there is a flavor of romance scam to it i think that that's not the Number one play, as you said, they diversify and, you know, cross over different terms all the time. They don't yeah. care about them. The other thing is the language. The yes. language yep. seems wonky. And I actually used, I, I used Google Bard and I put just one thing of what they sent me on, because they moved me to WhatsApp and nothing. Don't move off platform. I was going to um, say, this yeah. is for your research only. Oh, I yeah, don't recommend it to anyone. Fun. If they're trying right. to move you off to a different platform, they're a bad actor 99% of the time. But then that is something I try to tell everyone yeah. in my personal life as well, whether and it's if, and also on any platform whatsoever. If you're trying to sell something on one platform, yes. if you're trying to do something, also their first thing is let's get on another platform yeah. or do you accept this or whatever it is like that just. And they refuse <laughs> to stay on the platform. They will yes. not stay on the platform, yes. which is a test because they know the pla- it is a test. Flat. That's a good point. And that's exactly why there's such a scam ecosystem, right? Because they know that if they're on the platform for too long, that the platform can identify them. But they move to a yes. different platform. That second platform doesn't know what their activity was at first. Exactly. And they it's only have the second part. And it's usually encrypted. Yeah. Yes. And so I used Bard to tell me if a piece of what they told me was translated. And Bard was actually pretty good at that and said, yes, this was translated from Chinese. It's why we th- I think it was translated from Chinese. Wow. Another thing where AI scares me is that you don't need to translate from Chinese anymore. You just put it into an AI and they'll just write it in 
normal English and not translated English that just seems mm-hmm. weird to the English speaker. Right. It translates directly usually. Also, there's other things that I've, ta- I've spoken about with people, just like geopolitical weirdness. I think specifically I called that person out about Taiwan, and I'm pretty sure they told me that Taiwan is seeking independence from China. That was very interesting. And that's a very Chinese talking point. Taiwan, as far as I know, isn't seeking independence for anyone. They're independent. That's not how China sees it. So it's really... Uh, yeah, they're already independent. Yeah, you so need to seek independence if you and, have independence, right? you talk to. If mm-hmm. you talk to someone in China, they'll tell you something else. So those are things... Those That's a little bit down the line. But, I was going to say, yeah. That, that's that, after I delete them, but... Yeah, it's immediately the profile picture. But then you notice, like, even on LinkedIn, all of a sudden they're endorsed by other people. But it's funny, the one I saw, I was endorsed for being pretty. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> Another trick, not, I don't know, a trick or whatever that they that I've seen. And this is one way that because I run a LinkedIn group, I started a LinkedIn group when and there are various levels of success. We could have that conversation another time. But I specifically started one in mid-2020 due to COVID when people started to get laid off. And I often have people in the industry that are hiring for positions who will either reach out to me privately and say, hey, do you know of anyone specific or can you share this with your network? And I was sharing so many posts in my regular LinkedIn that nobody, the right people weren't seeing it. So I just said, hey, come over to join this group. And it's not, it will never be comprehensive. It will never, but it's a place where there's just added thing. And we've had some great success stories, right? But because I have that and you need to request access, I couldn't understand why so many people from a specific country in Southeast Asia with no followers or no connections, no nothing, just kept requesting to be in my group. I couldn't get it. And then I can't remember. Some I mentioned it to someone and they were like, once you're in the same LinkedIn group with someone, you can now message them. You can mm-hmm. now do things. And I'm like, well, it's a darn good thing. I'm already vetting this for overzealous salespeople that look for companies that are hiring and then say, hey, you don't have to hire someone. You just have to buy my product or other things like that. So I was already doing that. But um, that's just another thing to note too, right? Is I don't think that some of the trust and safety groups have 50,000 members, like it says. I'm like, how many people are actually in that? I don't know if maybe there are 50,000 people in trust and safety. I see that in neighborhood groups. Yeah. Yeah. Once they're in the group, they're in the group. I am still part of the neighborhood group from two neighborhoods ago when I lived in Seattle because you never know. It's fun. And sometimes I like other people's drama. Same reason I watch reality television. It's all about human behavior. But yeah, I think those are all good tips. I just didn't want to fly over them. And I think that you're bringing a good point that every Every person, every company that is being used or targeted by bad actors will see a different set of identifiers. So the platform may see more details on the back end that they can then create an MO for, right? A TTP or a TP for, like where it's, wait, TTP, I guess. TTP, yeah. <laughs> Too many acronyms in my head. I know TP. It's just it's been a long day. But, you know, that you're then able to write rules on and try to stop from being able to contact people. Other times you have to wait until they get to a certain point to be able to have enough identifiers, but it's up to the platform to continually adjust and learn and 
identify how they can detect them and how they can stop them and catch them. It's also up to the users to take the identifiers that they see, which aren't going to be as much as, you know, the company and try to not try to not let them perpetrate either and not always blame the platform. Now, granted, same point that you were saying earlier, if, you know, the same team or the same com- the same people are having to hammer hammer for 500 for 500 days in a row, then users are going to be like, Hey guys, this has been a problem for a year and a half. Come on, get your shit together. So that's why it's important to have a high level, but you still need the on the ground to, to just oh, yeah. even know what's happening. Right. So it's a also, good, are so important. Also, you need to on the ground to implement the in- intelligence that was found. Right. I find that they do a thing over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. We have to have an ops team that looks for that and then they'll stop because they will not be able to do it anymore because you have put people looking for that specific behavior beyond just the tools you just have a team right. of that that is very true yeah figuring out the motivation and all of that and i think the also like you said earlier right it's not just what does this look like it's what are the outlying behaviors that don't line up with regular people that was something that Totally different problem, but when I was looking at trying to find a solution for a client for refund fraud, for refund claims fraud, same thing. The way that everybody was trying to solve it when it first came out was they were trying to solve it the same way that we solve payment fraud. That's not where the point of compromise is. That's not where the crime happens. And so you're not going to get the data that you need. You're not going to get the outliers. Instead, you're going to piss off a lot of people and say, you can't buy this. Why? Because I think you might call us in a month and say you didn't get it. But so instead, let's wait until they say they don't get it. And then let's look at things. And when creating a solution that I'm going to, now it's been productized, but in, in creating a solution for that, it was, that was really the key. It wasn't just what do they do? It was what do they do that regular people who are also trying to do the same thing don't do? What devices are they using? What, how are they asking for it? What is the language the just the different types of like, what are those little tiny, teeny, tiny things when they say one thing versus another that you can say, okay, this, I believe actually happened to that person. Their package didn't arrive. This person, I know for a fact that it did. It's the same thing for this type of thing too, right? It's the same thing for accounts and accounts that are targeting user for scams. It's what are they doing? And then what are they doing that others aren't doing that we can really identify them on and then make it so much harder for them to do it on our platform. Yes, exactly. Asaf, I don't know how we do it every time. This is another second second call. I feel like we could have three or four or five more episodes, but I'm not. I'm just grateful for the time that you've given. But before we close up, because like all trust and safety people, we went on a few detours, but that is something that, you know, gosh darn it, I hear people enjoy my 20 minute tangents. It's a, there's a whole story behind that, but I just appreciate it so much. And you've given me so many things to think about. So I know you've given the people listening a lot too. Is there anything else that you wanted to share on these topics or others before, before we end this conversation, not to say that you can't come back in a few weeks or a month or anything like that, just especially on these topics, whether it be helpful for um, other people or other companies to identify them, to understand your position, to anything like that. The one thing that I would hope that people could do is just continue to share what they know and not get siloed in their things that they're doing because that's what they're working on now. And I'm saying that because I just learned it myself. 
I was very focused on one thing and I missed all the other things that are happening. And there's a bunch of really new and exciting things that are happening in the trust and safety space. And if you get bogged down in your work, you're going to miss them. So yeah, I have been very active on LinkedIn recently and I really enjoy that. That's really a good outlet for me and I get to meet really cool, exciting people, learn new things. So I wish everybody could do, would do as much as they can do with regards to sharing what they can, what they know. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think the other thing is, it's not just about moving on to the next problem. It's too many people that I talk to anyways, assume everybody knows that. And I'm like, oh no, they don't. They do not have the every, whether you work for a different type of company, whether you work in a different area of that company, we don't. And that's why I'm so passionate about the cross-pollination of information, because there is no way that any one of us could learn everything that everyone else has. And nor will we even when people share. But I learn new things from you, from Alice, from Jeff Dunn, from other people in the fraud and trust and safety space every dang day. And I'm so grateful that each one of you guys made the decision or realized, oh, I have some extra for you. It was, I have extra free time and I'm not, there are some considerations that have to be made when you're working for a large company, even some small companies, right? They feel like they, because we are talking about sensitive topics, we don't want anyone to take it the wrong way or anything, but there are ways to talk about these things without being about a specific company. It's just, it's helpful to share. I'm with you on that. And I think I just encourage people to start. The other thing that I wanted to share from working Facebook meta is that there's the people working in integrity care. Yeah. They're amazing. It's, I, I remember looking at the news and, oh, meta did this, meta did that. And we're like, eh. like it sucks. These people care and work very hard to protect mm. you because it's their mission and that's what they want to do. And that's what they feel like that their goal to protect people. And I've worked with people that was just like, even with if it's a scammer or anything, and it's like they get really emotionally invested and just heartbroken about, oh man, on anywhere that we worked. And it's very disheartening to see people saying, oh, this company allows this to happen or allows that to happen. And it's like, there's only so much like people can do. And I will say from the people that I worked with, they do more than humanly normal to do to protect people. I really appreciate you saying that because I I know that you have a lot of compassion and appreciation for the people that you worked with, both on a personal level as well as on a professional level. And I'd imagine it's been a journey over the last few weeks to separate yourself from that before you were prepared to do that. But I think that it's important, right? That that there are people who care that are doing that job. We have seen with another platform what can happen when there aren't. Well, we'll end on that lovely positive note. But again, just like the last time, I will put a link to your LinkedIn in the show notes so that every pig butchering fake profile can ask you to connect. Completely joking. But yeah, you'll have fun with it for sure. It'll give you something fun to do. Your red team research on this for fun. But Asaf Kipnis, I just appreciate your time and love geeking out with you. And even though we come from different worlds, so to speak, or different silos, there is so much crossover. And I think that definitely in the last two episodes, we have shown that more than ever. So thank you again. It was super enlightening. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. 
thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.